Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5? While you're doing that, I'll introduce myself if you don't know me. and I'm, My name's Andrew. I'm one of the elders here at Ironworks. And I'm honored to preach to you, to share something that the Lord's been putting on my heart for some time. I'll just tell you straight up, the, the topic we're going to be talking about is hope, gospel hope. So we'll read the passage, I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along as I read God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in, all, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. Father, I pray that your spirit would implant gospel-centered hope within the heart of Ironworks, Lord. That as we go throughout our lives, that we would be able to anchor to the hope that you have so graciously given to us. So, Lord, we love you, we praise you in your son's name. Amen. So one of my favorite TV shows is an HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's based on a book written by Stephen Ambrose of the same title. And it follows the story of American soldiers, Easy Company of the 101st Airborne during World War II. And these are the men that dropped into Normandy on D-Day. These are the men that liberated Holland these are the men that were at the forefront of the Battle of the Bulge, and they even liberated a Nazi concentration camp. And the beginning of each episode depicts the actual soldiers uh, in their now old age, recounting their experiences during the war. And it's a fascinating and sobering show, just as you ponder what these men went through. One of the episodes depicts an American soldier, uh, Private Albert Blythe, who throughout the episode struggled with his inability to function as a soldier due to his crippling fear. At times, he would struggle to fire his weapon uh, because he just couldn't muster up the courage during major battles. He would experience something called hysterical blindness, where because of the stresses of combat, everything would just go black and he would not be able to see. And when landing in Normandy on D-Day, he was separated from his unit and hid in a ditch as he landed, waiting to be found. And later he was found. Later in the episode, Private Blythe confesses to his captain of what he's been experiencing, this crippling fear that is presenting or preventing him from operating as a soldier. He confessed that while on D-Day, when his comrades were out fighting the Germans, he was hiding in a ditch waiting to be found. Captain Spears responded to this confession saying, do you know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? Blythe responded, I was scared. Captain Spears said, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. 
And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends upon it. Now, I don't want to undermine what these incredibly brave men went through or even begin to express any understanding of what combat is like. But I share this quote and this story because it offers an interesting perspective on what we're talking about this morning. Hope. Specifically, hope during a time of peril. See, what Captain Spears is advising the soldier is to abandon hope when you're faced with crippling fear, to give up hope of life and survival, because once you abandon hope, you'll have nothing to lose. And once you realize you have nothing to lose, then you'll be able to work through the horrors of war. So here's a question for us this morning. How does this perspective on hope compare and contrast to our understanding of biblical and gospel-centered hope? Perhaps it's easy to contrast to, uh, to our understanding of hope. The captain's suggestion is to abandon hope, to remain functional and steadfast. Whereas we as Christians, we know to cling to hope because a scripture tells us to. But also we as Christians know that we do have hope. God offers the hope of salvation, which is what Romans 5 speaks to. However, how does Captain Spears' comments on hope relate to gospel hope? See, the notion to give up hope is not entirely foreign to the Bible. Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, he says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is pointing out here, if you put your hope in this life, you'll surely lose it. But if we put our hope in Christ and eternity, hope will prevail. Jesus is saying, yes, abandon hope, just like Captain Spears, but he's saying, abandon the hope that this world offers and put your hope in me. That's the more important question is, where are we putting our hope? And that's what I want to talk about. What is this hope that Jesus calls us to? And that's the blueprint that Romans 5 gives us. So the two main points for my sermon are, one, the path to gospel hope, and the second, the product or the result of gospel hope. So first, the path to gospel hope. Now, I'm a numbers guy, so I kind of view Romans 5 as sort of an equation that Paul is laying out here, sort of the stepping stones to this path that he's describing. And the equation in my head kind of goes like this. Justification by faith leads to peace with God, which leads to access to God and his grace, which ultimately leads to gospel hope. I'll say it again. Justification by faith leads to peace with God, which leads to access to God, which leads to hope. So let's kind of break that down piece by piece. First off, justification by faith or being justified by faith. Starting in verse 1 of uh, chapter 5, Paul starts off saying, therefore. Whenever we see therefore, that means we have to reference back to see what Paul's talking about. The therefore is referencing chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Paul is explaining what this word justification is. What does it mean? So first we need to define it and understand it. And I don't want to go too much into chapter 4, but just to pull some verses from chapter 4, Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 4 that our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior is counted as righteousness before God. And again, in verse 24 and 25, Paul says, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So when we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when we have faith that he died to take the punishment of our sins, when we acknowledge, believe, and not just that, but trust that our need for Christ's saving work on the cross is necessary, the righteousness of Christ, his right standing before God, his perfection is given to us. Another word that theologians in the Bible use is Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. John Calvin says it better than I can. He says, justification is the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. The significance of justification is that God just doesn't accept us, but he declares us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. So that's what Paul means in verse 1 of chapter 5 when he says, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And this is crucial. This is the first and most foundational stepping stone to the, ba- to the path to gospel hope that we're talking about here. It's crucial to understand that all Christian hope pivots on this truth. Everything else in this equation that we're laying out here completely disappears without first believing that you are justified by faith. To give us a good diagnostic question as to whether we understand this doctrine of justification, when I ask, how sure are you that you will go to heaven when you die? If the dialogue in your head goes to, well, I've been a good person, I haven't hurt anyone, I try to go to church, I try to pray, read the Bible, if that's the dialogue in your head, you probably don't understand justification. Reason being is because, notice the eyes. You keep saying, I, I, I. You are resting on your own righteousness instead of resting on the righteousness that has been given to you through faith in Christ. So a practical step for us in the pursuit of hope is to simply believe the gospel, the good news of what Jesus brings. Do you, A, believe that God is real? Do you believe that he created you in his image to be in relationship with him? Do you believe that you're a sinner and you've broken away from this relationship? You rebelled against God. Do you believe that the only solution to rekindle this relationship is through God's intervention and not through your own good works? Do you believe that through Jesus, his death on the cross, that he paid the debt to reestablish that relationship between you and God? That once you accept and trust and believe this gift of grace that Jesus offers you, you are now justified before God and declared righteous. And now you can enjoy God in that relationship forever. If you believe this, that is the gospel, you have hope that cannot be taken away, that is secured for you in heaven. Let's move on to our second piece of that equation, the second stepping stone to the path to gospel peace. Verse 1 continues, says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. And this logically makes sense. We have now been declared righteous before God. We've been justified, and therefore now we have peace with God. So here's an interesting question to, uh, to ask, is what's the difference between peace with God that Romans 5 is talking about here and the peace of God? For example, Romans 5, peace with God, but there's another passage, Philippians 4, 7. It's a famous verse that many people quote all the time. It goes like this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. 
See, the peace of God described in Philippians is something that a Christian needs when surrounded with problems and difficulties and trials. It is when we're in danger of succumbing to anxiety that this verse is speaking to. The peace of God is a fruit of the Spirit and is given to Christians when things go wrong and we need our own personal peace. But peace with God is different. Peace with God in Romans 5 is not how we stand before tribulation, but it's how we stand before God himself. Peace with God means that through Jesus Christ, through justification by faith, we have peace with regard to God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a 20th century English minister. He was the minister uh, at Westminster Chapel in London for about 30 years. He describes peace with God that Romans is talking about as the obstacle which exists between God and the sinner are removed. They've ceased to be. And there's an entirely new relationship. There was formerly a barrier. There was a state of enmity. There was a state of war and antagonism. But now being justified by faith, all that has gone. And a condition of peace is established between God and those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's no peace between man and God until a man grasps this doctrine of justification. See, this peace with God, of course, implies that prior to our justification, we were not at peace with God. We were at war. We were at odds. We were rebellious to him. But Paul makes this clear, and Paul makes this clear earlier in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, he talks about how the wrath of God was being poured out on godlessness and on wicked men. So a good question to ask ourselves, do we truly meditate on the fact that we have peace with God? Do we meditate on this truth? Do we, that, we, that because of Christ, what he's done on the cross, we are permanently no longer at odds with God. When you mess up, when you fall to temptation, when you succumb to sin, do you feel in that moment estranged from God? Do you feel as though you need to even clean yourself up before you approach God in prayer? Friends, even in the depths of our sin, there is hope. If you are in Christ, God has made you, has made peace. End of story. And we need to remember that if we are seeking the peace that surpasses all understanding that Philippians is talking about, it's crucial to first remember the peace we have with God. And I would even argue that you cannot have the peace of God during tribulation without first having peace with God. I've had the honor and privilege to walk through some difficult things with some of you. And I know that some of us here are struggling with really hard things, really hard trials. Whether it may be sickness or strained relationships or difficulties with parenting and children in general, uncertainty of employment, financial stress, struggles with personal sin, or even uncertainty of ironworks in our community. My encouragement to you, ironworks, is to remember. Remember the peace you have with God. A good friend recently gave me incredible counsel. He said, when things seem to be going sideways, get the gospel right, because everything else will follow after that. We need to anchor ourselves to the gospel. If, you, if and when you struggle in this life, abandon hope like Captain Spears says, abandon hope of what this life offers and cling to the hope that Jesus offers, a hope that nothing in this world can snatch away. Jesus himself in John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice 
and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And even Paul later in Romans 8, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in our, in, through Christ Jesus our Lord. And church, I am very much so preaching to myself here. I so often attempt to put my hope in what this world offers. And I've, I've shared this with some of you in the past, but a big one for me is putting my hope in my fi- family's financial security, that that would bring me joy, that would bring me peace. But the reality is jobs are fleeting, the economy is uncertain, circumstances change. And I find myself asking frequently, why do I do that? I have a promise from God Almighty that there is a hope that is airtight. It is sealed up for me in heaven. And I just need to remember and to trust. So the second part of our equation here for the path to hope is to remember, to preach to ourselves, to meditate on the fundamental truth of our faith. That we were once at odds with God, but because of Christ we have peace with God. Let's move on to our third piece of the equation, access into God and his grace. Let's continue reading verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This peace that we've been talking about then in, turns, in turn leads to access to God. And again, this is a natural progression. It, it logically makes sense. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And now since we have peace, we have access to God and his kingdom. I remember a story that a friend once told me. He heard the story from a missionary friend of his who was overseas in an undisclosed region of India. And this missionary spent some time in uh, a local tribe, and he was learning the culture, learning the language, the community, in order to share the gospel with this tribe. And my friend just kind of recalled how interesting the governmental structure of this tribe was, just because it's very different from what we know as Americans. See, the tribe had a chief who was elevated among other tribes' people, kind of like a king. And there was this practice, this custom, that whenever a tribe member wanted to approach the chief, they would enter into the chief's hut, and as they approached, every few steps, the chief would either beckon the person to come closer, or he would cast them out in disapproval for whatever reason. Didn't matter. It was the chief's word. And this would happen several, several times. And as you can imagine, this made access to the chief very unpredictable and difficult. So this missionary, knowing of this custom and wanting to share the gospel with the chief, uh, entered into the hut. And as he approached, the custom went into practice. The chief would beckon him, and he would walk and stop a little bit, and then the chief would beckon him and walk and stop, on and on, not sure if the missionary would be, even be able to reach the chief to share the gospel with him. And when he was about halfway there, the missionary heard the door of the hut behind him open and close. And he looked back, and a little boy entered the hut. And the little boy started sprinting towards the missionary without even stopping and following this custom, and he sprinted right past the missionary and jumped right into the lap of the chief. 
with no hesitation, no seeking of approval. And that's the end of the story. I don't know the fruit of what happened to this tribe in India, uh, whether the missionary actually was able to share the gospel, but I share this story because it paints a perfect picture of what Paul is telling us in Romans 5 when he's talking about the access to God and his grace. We have been justified, we have peace with God, and these two truths have granted us access to God Almighty because we're now his sons and daughters. Just like the little boy running to his father, the chief, we have the privilege, the right, and the boldness to approach the throne of God, our king, with confidence, just as a child would their parent. And we have access to the kingdom of God. So to summarize our path real quick, our justification by faith leads to peace with God, which leads to access to God and his grace. And what's the next thing Paul says? Look at the last bit of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, the result of these things, of our equation, is a strong and joyous confidence in the sure expectation, also known as hope, of God's glorious goodness and favorable regard. So once we reach the end of this equation of hope, how do, we, how do our lives look differently? In other words, what is the product or the result of our gospel hope we now have obtained? And that's our second point, the product of a gospel hope. Well, first off, looking at verse 3, a product or result of this gospel hope is endurance and joys in suffering. Verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, I don't want to speak a ton on sufferings and joy in sufferings, because if you recall, Pastor Darren Pesnell kind of spoke on this idea last week when he was preaching from Romans 8. But I'll just say that Paul is saying in the midst of trial and suffering and persecution, he's imploring Christians to anchor to the hope which God has called you. And when you do that, you will be able to endure, and not just that, but endure with hope, or endure with joy. But joy is the piece that I want to more focus on as a product of gospel hope. Returning to verse 2, we have we rejoice, we have joy or exult in hope of the glory of God. Why does hoping in God's glory bring us joy? How is that connected? And not just any sort of joy, it's, it's joy that's so complete, so consuming, and so overwhelming that we're overcome with praise. Uh, John Piper is a Baptist pastor based out of Minneapolis, and probably for me, in my personal walk with the Lord, the most influential preacher. Uh, he uses a great illustration from something he witnessed as a young man that explains this relationship between hope and joy. So he, he recalls this story, and back near the end of the Vietnam War, there was a lot of American POWs, prisoners of war, that were being detained in Vietnam. And since the war has ended, it's been three, four, five, up to six years since American prisoners of war have been captured. And Piper recalls a specific story of a wife who during those six years remained faithful, not really sure if her husband was alive or not. Her children had grown up not knowing her father or their father. But then one day he recalls uh, the news article of 
this wife was in her home, and she received some news, a phone call. And on the other line was a man saying, your husband is alive. We found him. He's on an aircraft carrier, and it'll dock in San Diego in two weeks. We want you to come and meet him. And Piper recalls the scene of this wife running across the aircraft carrier deck into the arms of a once dead husband who is now alive after six years. And Piper just recalls the emotion involved, the joy involved with this reality. But now for a second, let's go back two weeks. The wife is in her house, the phone rings, and she hears he's alive, come to San Diego in two weeks. What's changed in her circumstances? Nothing changed in her circumstances, except one thing. News. Good news. She heard good news that he's alive, he's coming home. And what does that news produce? Hope and joy. You'll see him again, you'll kiss him again, you'll hug him again, he'll lay beside you again. He'll know your children as a father does. You just have to wait two weeks. See, we certainly can imagine what it means to rejoice in hope. We know what that means. Nothing about the circumstances of this wife had changed with that phone call. The difference was made only and completely by the hope that she received when this good news came. Good news leads to rejoicing in the hope that the news brings. That hope was made significant by the love that she had for her husband. Friends, if you love God... The good news of the gospel is that one day you will see God. You will see him. You'll hear him. You'll touch it. You'll experience God Almighty. But you just have to wait a little longer and be faithful. The hope of the glory of God concerns our final destiny as believers. Paul says in Romans 8.30, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified meaning ushered into the very presence of God and being able to experience with our senses just how glorious God Almighty is. If you believe Christ as your Savior, if you put your trust and faith in Him, friends, you have certainty that you will spend eternity with God in heaven. As many of you know, my wife's grandfather passed away about three months ago. And we, written, we witnessed that true rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, especially in the face of death. Pawpaw, as we called him, understood that he was justified by faith. He understood that he was, had peace with God. He understood that he had access to God because of this peace, and therefore he stood in the grace of God. Because of this understanding and belief, when facing death, Pawpaw had genuine hope. He was the most joyful and peaceful version of himself when nearing his death. Knowing that nothing, nothing in this world could take that glory that he was about to enter into. And it's hard to describe to someone what this peace in death looks like. Because it doesn't make much sense. When in viewed in light of this physical world, what does a dying man have to ha- be happy about? What does he have to be peaceful and joyful about? Friends, when you love God and that our eternal home 
is secure in his glorious presence. You have every reason to exult in joy. We have every reason to sing and to dance and to rejoice. It is what Paul describes when he says, to live is, to, is Christ and to die is gain. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, my encouragement to you is to remember, to cling and to rejoice in this blessed hope that Christ has given to you by the blood that he shed. We have so much to look forward to. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, or if you're uncertain about some of these things that we've talked about, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you. Or if you feel more comfortable, talk to the person that brought you. And as we close in prayer and worship, let's just reflect on the joy and hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for the ultimate joy that you provide in this life and in eternity to come. Father, would you build your church to be anchored to your gospel, that your gospel would be at the forefront of our minds, that our lives would look different as a product of the hope that we have. Holy Spirit, would you implant that within our hearts? Would you give that to us to cling to? Father, I pray that Ironworks would be a community exemplified by this truth, that it would be a community that reminds one another of the hope that we have in Christ. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.